Welcome to Leonard Lerope at Large. Oops, I'm hearing myself on my headphones. These are the problems we face when we broadcast from our homes. <laughs> anyway, I'll. Okay, it's all cleared up. Um, as I said, this is Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When Marion Nestle published her groundbreaking book, Food Politics How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health in 2002, a lot of people ask, what does food have to do with politics? But no more. In the two decades since, her books have influenced generations of writers on food, nutrition, and public policy. And now she's teamed up with one of them, environmentalist and food writer Carrie Truman, for her new book, Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. It's published by the University of California Press, and I'm very pleased to welcome Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman to our show now. And if you would like to ask Marion any, any questions, uh, write down this number. It's 212-209-2877. We'll try to squeeze some into this show, but there's lots to talk about. And Marion, it's been almost 20 years since you published Food Politics. What's changed in all that time? Everything has changed. Hello, Leonard. How are you? Ah, it's so good to talk to you again. Yeah, the um, I think the big changes have been public interest in food issues. When I wrote Food Politics in 2002, uh, there was that bizarre question, what does it have to do with politics? Everybody knows what it has to do with politics now. If the coronavirus has shown anything, it's shown what food has to do with politics. All you have to do is look at what's happening with meat packers, with food insecurity, and with what's going on in schools. It's just totally obvious to everyone. Um, so it's the enormous interest in the subject that I think is the big change. Do you think you've been able to have an effect on government policies regarding food and nutrition? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, there are ways in which uh, certainly school food improved. Um, mm -hmm. It may not have improved as much as I would have liked it to, and we don't. We still don't have universal school meals, at least not past December 31st this year. But the idea that everybody is talking about universal school meals seems to me an enormous step forward. Um, and that the the issues that I think are really important and critical, uh, people not having enough food, the effect of food on our levels of obesity and type two diabetes and sure. other fact and other diseases for which obesity is a risk factor, and then climate change. Um, you know the three big the three big public health nutrition issues: undernutrition, overnutrition, and climate change. And we'll try to address all of that during this conversation we're having today. Uh, Carrie, you've written for the Huffington Post, Civil Eats, and, and other sites. When did you first encounter Marion's work? <laughs> well, Marion has always been the go-to person for any story about food in the news, as I'm sure you know, for decades going back. She's like the Anthony Fauci of food issues. So I... <laughs> Would always be wondering every time. You, wasn't she like on your speed dial whenever you were covering any story, whether it was like yeah. a salmonella outbreak or a new study about how coffee was good for you or bad for you or whatever? I would always ask myself. I, I would say, well, what would what's Marion Nestle going to say about this? Because to me, she's the gold standard, and I didn't know her personally. 
But then, as luck would have it, um, we had a mutual friend who introduced us around the time that she was putting out her amazing book, What to Eat. Uh, so I had the incredible good fortune to get to know her personally. And so, you know, I just felt like, wow, I have this amazing resource. And um, I just, like, if you knew Anthony Fauci personally and you could get his take on all of the, you know, confusing stories swirling around COVID, wouldn't you feel an obligation to share that with other people? <laughs> Not if you're Donald Trump, but that's a whole other matter. Oh, <laughs> that's a good, your point's well taken, but I just felt like, wow, I, I can ask her anything now. Like, I, if I have a question, whatever it might be, I can just reach out to her, and she'll get back to me. She's very generous with her knowledge and expertise. And so I just thought, I, I want to share this with as many people as possible because there's thousands of people who also would like to know what does Marion Nissel have to say about this. So, so you really so you structured this book in the form of an interview. Um, I, Marion, I guess it's uh, the these are the frequently asked questions that come up when you're speaking to groups. Um, it is, and um, you know, when I asked Carrie if she would be willing to do this because the thought of having to write short essays. Um, as I was asked to do by University of California Press, was really daunting to me. I, I write books that are 500 pages and have millions of references, and, and the idea of writing short essays uh, was daunting. I find them very, very difficult to do. And then I remembered Carrie's terrific questions, which she would post on her website and I posted on my website under the heading of Let's Ask Marion. So the title and the framing of of this book is really her idea, um, and I could never have done this book without her. <laughs> but you have had an interesting you. career. You were trained as a molecular uh, biologist, and then you became a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at NYU. You've written or co-authored more than a dozen books on food policy, and you also have a blog we should mention in case people want to check you out in other ways, uh, called uh, foodpolitics.com, blog.foodpolitics.com. Did I get it right? You got it right, foodpolitics.com. Now, Carrie, one of the terms you use in this book is food system. What, what does that mean and why is it important for us to understand? Listen, that's a question for Marion. I'm going to talk okay, to right Marion. She'll define it much better than I could. <laughs> okay. Well, Carrie, I do have to ask you some questions because I don't want this. I, I could just probably do most of this speaking to Marion, but I, I do want you to join in the conversation. I, I, I so appreciate that, but I defer to Marion. I am so very much the second banana in this. So <laughs> okay. ask away, but ask Marion. <laughs> So, Marion, what about the term food system? What does it mean oh, well, and why is it important to understand? Yeah, it's a buzzword, and it's the buzzword that's currently used to describe everything that happens to a food from the time it's produced, distributed, sold, purchased, consumed, and wasted. It's just the whole cycle that foods go through. And its power is that it makes you think about how the food got to you when you're eating it. And if we want to understand why people eat the kind of foods that they do, uh, why our food system works the way it does, why uh, meatpacking workers were suddenly deemed essential in the middle of the COVID epidemic, the answer to that is food systems. Because you have to, if you want to understand why meat was 
uh, not in supermarkets at the beginning of the COVID crisis. It was because of what was happening in meatpacking plants, and that was um, responsible for backing up animals on farms that were then destroyed at the same time that millions of people were waiting online to get food handouts because they'd lost their jobs and didn't have any money. That's food systems. And food systems is a way of helping you to analyze what's going on and to understand what's going on in a way that otherwise wouldn't make sense. The first question in the book is, what is a healthy diet, which seems to be pretty all-inclusive, but does healthy diet mean different things to different people? Because we have a lot of people now who are strict vegans, others who follow a paleo, low-carb, or, or keto diet. Uh, are they all healthy diets? Well, they certainly can be, and there's no reason why they can't be. Um, you know, I think healthy diets are really simple. They follow, I mean, they're so simple, and I'm constantly quoting the journalist Michael Pollan on this one. Um, his description of a healthy diet is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Uh-huh. Really, that takes care of it. And any diet that meets those principles, meaning that it's based on foods that are not highly processed, balanced in calories, so you're not gaining inappropriate amounts of weight, um, and largely but not necessarily exclusively plant-based, that takes care of it. And within those three principles, there are uh, uncountable ways of producing foods that are delicious and good for you. I think but it's then, easy. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's easy. I, I don't think it's very hard to eat healthfully following but, those principles. But it's also suggested that uh, some people's food choices are based on their political beliefs. For example, is someone who's uh, concerned about climate change and animal rights, uh, is that person more likely to be vegan than someone who doesn't care about those issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are loads of reasons for eating exclusively plant-based diets. Uh, Those could be health reasons. They could be animal rights. They could be climate change, environmental impact. All of those are important reasons for choosing diets that are exclusively plant-based. But I think it's possible to put healthy diets together that are largely, but not necessarily exclusively plant-based, and those are good too. We'd, be all, we'd all be healthier eating less meat, at least in the United States, uh, or a lot of us would, um, and it would be much better for the planet. Are people who care about the right to own guns more likely to eat a paleo diet? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, if you're counting people who hunt, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> well, we used Actually, to have the food no. pyramid, which showed the relative proportions of foods that we should be eating with bread and grains at the bottom, uh, getting the largest share and fats at the top, getting the smallest share. Has, um, uh, does the food pyramid still apply or has the food pyramid changed over the years? No, we've replaced it. We replaced it in 2010 with what is called My Plate, which is a plate that shows half the plate is fruits and vegetables, a quarter of the plate is grains, and a quarter of the plate is the annoyingly labeled protein category, which as a nutrition I find just hugely ridiculous um, because protein is a euphemism for meat, um, but 
vegetables have protein, dairy foods have protein, and they're included in a separate category off the plate, um, and grains have protein. So it didn't make any sense to me that protein was, it's a protein is a chef's term. Uh, used for whatever is going to go in the center of the plate. Uh, it doesn't really have any nutritional meaning in that way. Um, but that replaced the pyramid because the pyramid was old and the administration at that time, that was Obama administration, wanted something fresh and new. And we don't have a new version of it yet, but I bet we get one next year. It seems like nutrition advice is always changing. Uh, for example, things like eggs, coffee, and wine have at different times been seen as healthy or unhealthy. The Times just wrote an article uh, touting the health benefits of red wine. Um, I don't know whether uh, it should be believed or not, although it made me want to drink a lot more red wine. But doesn't that just confuse people? How can we know what to believe? Well, my answer to the how do we know what to believe is ask me, of course. <laughs> um, I don't know what else to say when anybody asks me that question. Um, the, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about these one food studies. Um, you know, wine is good for you, bad for you. Eggs are good for you, bad for you. These are looking at single foods in the context of diets that are enormously complex. If you look carefully about what people who have enough money to be able to make whatever food choices they want, if you look at the diets of people like that, uh, you see that they vary enormously from day to day and from person to person. Um, you know, I think the most intellectually challenging question in the field of nutrition is to try to figure out what people are eating. Um, it's really hard, but they eat changes all the time. And so to ask about the health benefits of one food in the middle of all of that just doesn't make any sense to me. We need to figure out a way to study diets as a whole. I think that would be much less confusing. And I don't think you have to worry about one food. You have to worry about the diet as a whole. And if the diet as a whole is based on relatively unprocessed foods, balanced in calories, and has a lot of plant foods, you're doing fine. Stop worrying about it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. I'm speaking with Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman about their new book from the University of California Press. Let's ask Marion what you need to know about the politics of food. And Marion, you say that you always look to see who's funding a particular study before you decide whether to trust it. Do trade groups for particular foods fund studies uh, oh. in, in hopes of showing that their products are healthy? Oh, of course they do. Uh, that was my previous book, Unsavory Truth, mm. how the food industry skews the science of what you eat, in which I detailed the way in which trade associations and individual companies fund research that, what a coincidence, always or almost always comes out with mm -hmm. results that favor the sponsor's interest. Um, this has been done for the chemical drug, pharmaceutical drug and cigarette industry for years and years and years, but studying the food industry is relatively recent, which is why I wrote that book. Um, but I was astounded at how similarly food industry-sponsored research um, produced results 
like those other industries, with the basic findings being that industry-funded research comes out with results that favor the sponsor's interest, but the people who do the research don't really realize it. It's, so the scientists who are running these studies may be acting ethically? Uh, or, well, they or, think they are. are, are <laughs> aren't they already starting out with preconceived results? Um, no, or they think, I mean, this is something that happens unconsciously. There's a huge literature that demonstrates the unconscious effect of gifts. Um, and in a sense, research funding is a form of gifts. And so the investigators generally did not intend to be influenced. They don't think they were influenced. They don't recognize that they were influenced. It's just that the results almost invariably come out in favor of the sponsor's interests, um, unless they take very, very strict precautions to try to fight against that, and even then it gets in. And, and what the research shows is that most of the bias shows up in the research question. I get, for example, um, letters from trade associations all the time saying, we've got $50,000. Um, we are looking for studies that will show the benefits of our products. Well, they're not going to fund studies that are unlikely to show benefits. They're only going to fund studies that are designed to show benefits. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of it. And it, it's a system that works really well. Another term you use a lot in the book is ultra-processed. What does that mean in terms of food? Uh, are all processed foods bad for you? Um, ultra-processed is a, another one of these relatively new buzzwords. It was developed by a public health researcher in Brazil, Carlos Monteiro, uh, who did a definition of degrees of food processing that you know, most foods that we eat are processed in one way or another, uh, but he defined a specific category of foods which he labeled ultra-processed, and these are foods that are industrially produced, cannot be made in home kitchens, have ingredients that you can't buy at a grocery store, have long lists of unfamiliar ingredients, um, have a long shelf life, are highly processed, um, and are designed to be extremely palatable uh, so people love them. You know, the old potato chip advertisement about you can't eat just one, um, you know, that kind of thing. And what's powerful about that is that once that definition was done, researchers could start looking at that particular category of foods and correlating it with various kinds of illnesses. And there, there is now tons of research that shows that people who eat a lot of ultra-processed foods have worse diets, um, have higher body weights, are at greater risk for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and overall mortality for that reason. And there's even an incredibly well-controlled study that was done at NIH that shows that people who eat ultra-processed diets uh, take in more calories than um, when they're just eating other kinds of foods and don't realize that they're taking in more calories and gain weight. And should we be concerned when we look at the list of ingredients if, if there are certain things there who, that we don't recognize, that the names we don't recognize? Uh, that always seems to me to be a clue that the thing has been ultra-processed. That it's, well, it's a very good clue. 
Um, you know, and the fewer ingredients, the better. I mean, if the apples um, are, or potatoes, I guess, are the best example. The difference between potatoes, French fries, and chips um, at increasing levels of processing. I'm not going to have to. I'm not going to be able to eat chips anymore. <laughs> you can eat oh, chips boy. in moderation. Make them yourself in an air fryer. It's the best solution. Um, but I wanted to say, Leonard, one of the um, most valuable pieces of advice I ever got from Marion was, if there are more than five ingredients on the packaging, you probably don't want to buy whatever it is. Uh, and I think that the genius of that was borne out when I think it was Haagen-Dazs that basically ripped off that concept. Am I right, Marion? Didn't they have a line of ice creams that only had five or less ingredients? They did. They did, and they based it on something that Michael Pollan had written. Um, I thought it was really funny. I've always <laughs> liked Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I have to confess it. Yeah, but you got to check out the weight. Haagen-Dazs is less than a pint, and it's yeah. selling for the same price as other ice creams that are uh, a full pint. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you, it's quality over quantity, I guess. You point out that a glass of juice can be the equivalent of four pieces of fruit. Are we better off having one piece of fruit than a glass of juice if, if the juice is just the pure thing? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, eat food. Less uh, processed, better. Uh, juice is processed. And I, I like juice. And when I was growing up 100 years ago, uh, we had four-ounce juice glasses. Nothing wrong with that. That was our mm -hmm. vitamin C for the day. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a big difference between four ounces and 16 ounces or 24 ounces or quarts or whatever. Um, you know, and if I had one piece of advice, it's that smaller portions have fewer calories. What, about, what are your thoughts well, on, since you mentioned uh, vitamins, uh, thoughts on vitamin pills and other nutritional supplements? Do people in this country generally get enough vitamins and minerals in their diets? Uh, and what about herbal supplements? I'm going to throw them all out right now, like echinacea that people take to prevent colds or valerian for insomnia. Are they generally effective? Well, I think they're... The whole supplement thing is really interesting. I'm not a big fan of supplements um, because I think the evidence that supplement, that, that I, I just don't think there's any evidence at all that supplements make healthy people healthier. And since healthy people are the people who take supplements, uh, they're the ones who need them least. But supplements make people feel better. There's no question about that. And whether that's because of something in the supplement, and there's a whole political business about whether what's really in the supplement is what it says on the label. Um, it's, whether it's the supplement itself or whether they're just really sophisticated placebos, I, I can't figure out. But I, I'm always amazed at how little evidence supports benefits of supplements giving, given to generally healthy people. And there's very, very little evidence of clinical signs of nutrient deficiency among the general American population. There may be individual groups or people who eat really strange diets who have nutrient deficiencies, but uh, mostly what we talk about is marginal or subclinical nutrition de deficiencies, and I don't know what that means. A hot topic in the food world right now is burgers made from plants that look and taste like beef. 
First, what makes them cut off? come so close to the... Are you cut off? I didn't hear anything. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. I, I was saying one of the hottest topics in the food world right now are burgers that are made from plants that look and taste like beef. First of all, what makes them come so close to the look and taste of beef? And are they actually healthier than, than hamburgers? Well, they're brilliantly designed. And the food technologists who have worked on these things, I think, have done a, a fantastic job of reproducing the appearance, texture, and taste of actual meat. But I have to say, you know, I'm not their core customer. Um, I, I just don't get the whole thing about meat alternatives. Because if you don't want to eat meat, you don't have to eat meat. Um, you know, you can eat a perfectly healthy diet without eating meat. And so I don't understand why you would want to substitute an artificial food that clearly falls in the category of ultra-processed because of all the ingredients it has in it. Uh, you can't make them in home kitchens. Um, I, I kind of don't understand it, but they're enormously popular. There's huge amounts of venture capital money in them. Um, and people, I, I don't know, I mean, my favorite example is a parent who said, I'm just so happy to have them because at last I can take my kids to a fast food restaurant and they'll have something to eat there. What about all the new kinds of milk, almond milk, oat milk, hemp milk? Are they any healthier than cow's milk? Or is it just simply that vegans do not want to have to have anything that comes from an animal? Well, vegans don't eat anything. If you're on a vegan diet, you don't eat anything that comes from, from an animal. And vegans tell me they like having these alternative sources of foods around, so they have a greater variety of foods that they can eat. Um, you know, I think if you like the almond milks and the nut milks and the soy milks and all those things, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They don't reproduce the nutrient quality of dairy foods, but people are not nutrient deprived in the United States, so it really doesn't matter. Um, and I think dairy foods are optional just like every other category of food. What about gluten-free foods? Is gluten inherently unhealthy or only for people who have certain medical conditions? Uh, and well, I, would it matter whether a bread is made from gluten-free flour or not for somebody who, who doesn't have a, a gluten medical problem? Well, I, I think gluten-free products are miraculous for people who have celiac disease. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just the idea that you can go to gluten-free restaurants, that you can get gluten-free products in supermarkets must just be such a relief to the parents of kids who have um, celiac disease or to people who ha are allergic to gluten, which a lot of people are. Um, a lot of people think that they're sensitive to gluten. When they don't eat foods with gluten, they feel better. It's hard to argue with that, and I'm not going to. Um, but I think that for people who aren't um, allergic or reacting to gluten, and I don't know, I personally, I'd hate to give up bread. We have particularly sure. delicious bread around where I'm living right now, and I would hate not to be able to eat that. What about gluten-free flours? 
Do they, well, they have their, not make they bread have as their, well? They have their uses. I don't think they taste as good. Another hot term in the food world is superfood, which is often applied to fruits like blueberries and pomegranates. Are they better than, than apples, pears, and, and peaches? No, that's a marketing term. Uh -huh. It's a marketing term. Um, no, all vegetables and fruits have nutrients and antioxidants and other really good things in them. Um, so they're all superfoods. Anytime you eat any fruit or vegetable, you're eating a superfood, um, which I guess means that it's got vitamins, minerals, and uh, antioxidant nutrients in it. Uh, but it's been a very, very successful marketing terms, particularly for blueberries and pomegranates, um, when the pomegranate people sank millions of dollars into demonstrating that pomegranates have nutrients in them. I could have told them that um, <laughs> and saved them a lot of money. Um, but it, 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 if it gets people to eat more fruits and vegetables, I'm for it. Well, another thing that people are pushing these days is eating locally. Uh, you can get apples, pears, peaches, blueberries, whatever from California, but you can, right now, you can get them all from uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Ah, uh, yes, the end of August. It's a wonderful time. We're beginning to demo. Are they better, the local ones? Um, they're better for local farmers. <laughs> um, and I'm greatly in favor of supporting local farmers. I think it's a terrific thing to do. Um, you know, I happen to like blueberries, and I'm fascinated by what happens to blueberries. Right now we're getting, uh, where I am, we're getting blueberries from Canada. And um, pretty soon those blueberries are going to start coming from Patagonia and places like that. And you can just see them moving up South America into Mexico and then into the southern states And as the year goes on. I like to think when I'm buying blueberries from Patagonia that I'm supporting some Patagonian farmer. That makes I me have, feel better. I have blueberry bushes, but uh, I rarely get to eat any of them because the day before I plant, I plan to pick them, uh, obviously, uh, some animals decide that they want them. Uh, we, have the birds. A, we have to take a little break uh, and we will come back in, in a while with uh, more from Marion Nessel and uh, uh, Carrie Truman. We're talking about uh, food. And uh, we invite you to join the conversation. Uh, the, the number to call in is 212 zero nine two eight seven seven that's two one two two oh nine twenty eight seventy seven this is wbai new york 99.5 fm we're streaming live at wbai.org Okay. Well, I want to get back to my conversation with Marion Nessel and uh, Carrie Truman, but uh, I have to take a couple of minutes to talk to you about something very important. 
Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard by the pandemic, and a lot of our long-term supporters have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who's able to, in this time of crisis, to make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopate at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., that uh, we would could call right now. Uh, the number 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to WBAI.org. And uh, we appreciate any amount, any show of support, but becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a, a particularly good way to, to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. If you call, 516-620-3602 or go to uh, give to wbai.org today we will be happy to send you a free copy of the book that we've been discussing let's ask marion what you need to know about the politics of food nutrition and health by my guests marion nessel and carrie truman it's our way of saying thanks and and all you need to do is uh i'll give the number again 516 call that number 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org and sign up at the monthly amount of ten dollars fifteen dollars twenty dollars whatever you're comfortable with it'll be taken out of your credit card your debit card or whatever is easiest for you BAI buddies are a great way to support the show and to give the station a steady source of support, cash flow. Because, you know, WBAI is the last station on the New York City radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. We, we don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. And one last time, I'll give out that number, uh, 516-620-3602, or go to give to wbai.org online. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and from all of us at the show and from BAI. Thanks. And now we're returning to my guests, Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman, to talk about their book, Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. It's published by the University of, of California Press. Um, one seeming contradiction is that we have high levels of obesity, although there's a real problem with hunger in this country. How likely is it for someone to be obese and malnourished at the same time? Oh, it depends on how you uh, define malnourished. Um, it's quite possible to have a diet that's very, very high in calories um, and that is relatively low in nutritional value, especially if you're eating the cheapest foods in our food supply, which are largely highly ultra-processed foods. Um, but I think, you know, as I said, we don't see clinical signs of malnutrition very often in this country, uh, even among um, people who are largely overweight. What we do see is a much higher risk for COVID-19 and other problems that have to do with um, an immune system that isn't as healthy as it could be. I understand we have a number of people who have called in. Should we take some of the calls? Sure. Okay. Let's go to the first one. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Leonard. Hi. Hi. I jumped ship, basically. Uh, I followed you to BAI. I abandoned NYC. From my one Thank you very much. Hours with you, by the way. 
Um, so I'm giving you, let me give you a little insight because I've been a vegan since 1992. And um, so I've watched these changes that have taken place. Now, the Miracle Burger is, is really smart because basically if I'm with a car load of people and they're like, where should we eat? We want to go to McDonald's. Uh, how about Burger King? Because I can eat something there. So they get the whole carload of people because I won't go to Burger King. And uh, But a very practical thing about that nutrition plate that you mentioned, you said, why does it have a category for protein? I think it's smart because, again, I'm with people saying, you don't get enough protein in your diet. I imagine a kid saying he wants to be a vegan, and he's like, no, I got the program. I got enough protein. Look here. Now, it may not be a category for a nutritionist, but in a practical way, the person could say, no, no, I'm, a, I'm having tofu. Look, it's covered in the protein. So from a practical point of view, it's useful. Marion? Great. Happy Go to ahead. hear it. <laughs> huh? You know, you have, because you're dealing with fending off people who say, no, that's not the way to do it. You have to have a steak. No, no, I don't. Look, look at the protein plate <clears throat> or look at the diet plate. And then and it keeps your family saying, oh, okay, I guess so. You know, a lot of a lot of life is like winning over the parent. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sure. And we thank you very much for your call. Marion, do you want to respond? Sure. Yeah, I just wish that people would understand that vegan diets have plenty of protein in them. The protein is in the vegetables, it's in the beans, it's in the, it's in the grains that they're eating. Um, and it's, you know, it's there. Uh, it's just protein is not a problem in American diets. And to single it out as if it needs special attention makes absolutely no sense to me. But, you know, I'm a nutritionist. What can I tell you? Can okay, I let's go to another <laughs> another call. Uh, I think Carrie. I think Carrie wanted I, to say something. Yeah, Carrie, please. Yeah, if, if you don't mind, uh, in defense. No, of Carrie, talk attention. as much as you want. We, oh. you're one of the two guests on the show today. Oh, well, you're very kind. I mean, really, honestly, I'm just so honored to have had the chance to collaborate with Marion. But what I want to say about protein is. For myself, as a pre-diabetic with dangerously high blood sugar, like borderline diabetic, I know that for me it's important how I choose to combine proteins and carbs because if you just eat straight, complex, simple carbs, whatever, like just a plain bagel, your body converts that to sugar much more quickly than if you put, say, a schmear of cream cheese and some smoked salmon on it. So I'm always looking to balance the proteins and the carbs. For me, that's a consideration that, you know, some people don't have to take into account, but a lot of people, I think something like 25% of the country is pre-diabetic, and then there's all the people who actually have full-blown diabetes. So for us, I think protein is a little bit more of a consideration, but you know, maybe I'm overthinking it. And cream cheese and lox is not a balanced diet? <laughs> it balances out well for me. <laughs> let's, let's take another call, okay? BAI, you're on the air. Hi, great show. I just want to ask the ladies, what do they believe the long-term effect of uh, heavy sprays such as Roundup, uh, Ready good. products, and uh, genetically modified are going to be doing on the, the gut genome of America? Now, I, can I thank a guest, a caller? Because those were questions that I was about to ask, so I'm so pleased <laughs> that you asked I'm them. I'm a psychic. What can I tell you? <laughs> <sighs> I can't believe Roundup is even still on the shelves, frankly. Yeah. It boggles my mind. They've, they've uh, lost a number, Monsanto's lost a number of lawsuits, uh, paid out millions of dollars, mm -hmm. and yet I still see some ads for Roundup on television. 
people are still pouring Roundup on their lawns to kill clover and dandelions. I, to me, that's just so deranged. So you could just pull the weeds out, can't you? You can eat the weeds. First of all, clover <laughs> is beneficial. Clover is beneficial to your lawn because it's pulling nitrogen from the air and fixing it in the soil, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. And dandelions, you pay at the farmer's market, you pay $3 for a bunch of dandelions. Uh-huh. So, right. You know. You can eat them, too. Uh, they're delicious. So what about the so that's that's uh, what about GMO foods uh, that the caller also asked about? Well, there aren't that many of them on the market. Um, there have been a certain number. Most of them are corn and soybeans that are fed to animals or used as alcohol fuel for cars. There are very very few genetically modified foods that people can buy in supermarkets. Um, so in a sense, they're a non-issue. Uh, for the for Americans, they're a huge issue for feeding animals, um, and the you know the idea that uh, people are still using Roundup kind of makes my um, you know I have the same reaction that Kerry did on that. Uh, Bayer, the company that now owns Roundup, because Bayer bought mm-hmm. Monsanto, um, has is settled. I guess they don't make enough money from aspirins. I guess not. I mean, well, it's costing them $12 billion, billion, not million, billion dollars to settle um, and not all of the lawsuits. There's something like 40,000 lawsuits over this mm-hmm. for people who have been exposed to Roundup in the works that they do and develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of blood cancer, and they're suing the company and they have to deal with these lawsuits. Uh, I mean, it's kind of astounding, actually. Uh, I think buying Monsanto was probably not the smartest thing that somebody <laughs> ever did. The mayor did. Uh, caller, you have a follow-up, or should I go to another call? Well, I guess that caller is gone. Uh, but uh, we know that organically grown fo- foods are better for us and the environment uh, than foods that are grown with pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. But Organic foods are, are more expensive. How can we make organic foods available and affordable for everyone? Well, we have to change policy. Uh, there are reasons why organic foods cost more. They're harder to produce. They require more labor and more attention. Um, and they're not in any way subsidized. Uh, the foods that get subsidized by the government tend to be food for animal and animals and fuel for cars, not food for people. Uh, that's a system that could be changed. Should we take another call? Sure. These are good callers. BAI, you're on the air. Yeah, hey. Uh, you mentioned uh, free ra- uh, 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 yeah, um, uh, antioxidants uh, as being a good thing. I-, I gathered some theory about free radicals causing inflammation or something, and... Uh, uh, what's the story there? I, I, I looked it up, and you know, because they advertise it, and I distrust advertising. And I look it up, and kind of got the impression, well, that was a theory, but it didn't really hold up. Well, William Barr hates free radicals, so. Well. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> right, right. Um, and the caller is absolutely right. Um, the evidence that I mean, if you eat, here's the thing. 
This is nutritionism we're talking about. Nutritionism is a term that's used uh, to using single nutrients to stand for the whole food. The observation is that people who eat fruits and vegetables are healthier than people who don't eat fruits and vegetables. Uh, so then the question is why and, uh, and which fruits and vegetables? And then we get into marketing. And so fruits and vegetables have hundreds of antioxidant nutrients in them that are not necessarily essential for life and have functions that are not very well understood for the most part. Only a few of them have been studied. Um, and the few that have been studied show that that particular nutrient is correlated with good health, but correlation does not necessarily equal causation. So you're left with uh, the situation that eating fruits and vegetables is good for you. Eat fruits and vegetables and stop worrying about what's in them because the research on that has a long way to go yet. Okay. Can I, can I say something about omega-3s? Of course you can. Definitely. Because I think Marion would agree with me. There's a lot of very good science on the benefits of omega-3s, but I'm talking about getting your omega-3s from actual food sources, whether it's plants or fish or whatever, taking omega-3 capsules is a really dubious prospect. But if we get the omega-3s like directly from the plants that contain omega-3s or, you know, salmon or whatever, I think that's one example of, I don't know if you'd call that superfoods or whatever, but omega-3s definitely have been proven to be beneficial. So it's a question of getting it, not overthinking it, just getting it from actual foods and not supplements, capsules, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, food safety is another issue. We're always hearing about outbreaks of foodborne illnesses like E. coli and salmonella, uh, often affecting healthy foods like lettuce and melons. Is that because of uh, our national agricultural industry policies? And can those outbreaks be prevented? Well, we actually have terrific laws now that govern food safety. The problem is that the companies that are producing food don't adhere to them well enough. Um, and these companies don't necessarily have a culture of food safety um, that makes every single person who's involved in it following the production rules to produce food, food safely. We know how to produce food safely because of NASA. Um, when NASA first started sending astronauts into outer space, they were really worried about foodborne illness because they were afraid that um, the astronauts would get food poisoning, and under conditions of zero gravity, that would be especially uncomfortable. Um, so they found this procedure, and no astronaut has ever gotten food poisoning. So if they can do it in outer space, they ought to be able to do it on Earth. Um, but the problem is that the companies don't follow the rules, and every single person in the company isn't paying attention to it. Part of the problem is that food safety oversight is divided between the Department of Agriculture, which does animals, and the, and the FDA, which does plant foods as if plant food crops weren't grown on land near um, CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, where there's a lot of animal waste around. One of the things you have to do if you grow vegetables is to keep animals away from it. 
Now, we have very little time and we have lots of calls coming in. I'm going to try to sneak one or two more in in the in uh, the, the next three minutes. So, caller, please make your question brief, but uh, we really appreciate the fact that you've called. You're on the air. Sure. Thanks. Um, first of all, I agree. I, I came over with you, too, from uh, NPR. So it's good to have you on the radio again. However, thanks. I, I was on the, I, I was heavy as a kid. Uh, I'm 70 years old now. I, I'm six feet tall. I used to weigh around 236 pounds, okay? But I played ball, so I didn't really look all that bad. And I tried every diet under the sun. The only one that worked for me, and I still eat that way, more or less, is the Atkins diet, the low-carb diet. And what Dr. Atkins, well, first of all, my uh, cholesterol went down, okay? My, um, what do you call uh, the ratio of cholesterol is one point something to one, which is incredibly good. And what is a low-carb diet? It's pretty much what, the, except she, she talks about plant-based diets. It's stop eating junk food, really. Stop drinking Coca-Cola, stop uh, you know, eating potato chips. So if you're having a steak, right, or a chicken with the skin on, God forbid, and you, know, you eat that with a side of vegetables, glass of water or whatever, you're good to go. And I lost all that weight. Now I'm probably too skinny. I'm 155 pounds. All right. Never gained an ounce. In fact, lost it. And I attribute the fact that when I had COVID, I recovered so fast because I, I lead kind of a clean life. Like I don't smoke, you know, I don't drink a lot or anything like that. So that diet worked for me. And the universal condemnation that I hear, well, not so much anymore, but uh, of a lot of people, that, oh my God! If you eat this meat, you eat these eggs, you're going to die. You know, I don't think so. so Marion, <laughs> what about the Atkins diet? Well, you never heard that from me. Um, <laughs> you know, you're going to die if you eat eggs or what? Um, it sounds to me like he's eating a really balanced diet that keeps his calories under control. All diets work if you follow them. I um, mean, good for him. I think he's done really well. Thanks for calling. I like and hearing stories like that. We're pretty much out of time, but I did want to, we, we mentioned climate change, and I'm sorry that we can't get more calls in, uh, but how do, do, do things like the extreme weather and wildfires affect our food supply, and should we be concerned, and, or should we change agricultural practices to, uh, to adjust to the fact that it's likely that we're going to see a lot more of this? Carrie, you want to take that one? Yeah, Carrie. Oh boy. That's a big question, but absolutely we need to rethink so many aspects of agriculture. But climate change and agriculture are so inextricably intertwined, and our agricultural practices, our industrial agriculture, has exacerbated climate change. And it's just a... I guess, a mutually disastrous cycle. So whether we like it or not, we're going to have to do things differently. We're going to have to allocate resources differently. And just, uh, Marion, I mean, you can weigh in on this, please, but there's, there's no way that we're going to be able to continue on the path we've been on for the last few decades. Marion, one minute. Um, the diet that's best for health which is a diet that is lower in meat and higher in fruits and vegetables, is also the diet that's best for the planet. Um, so we only have to follow one dietary pattern, and we'll be promoting our own health and planetary health at the same time. Um, so, I, you know, it's very simple. It's eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, 
eating meat if you like it, but not in large quantities, and avoiding highly ultra-processed foods. And composting uh, your kitchen waste, composting organic matter instead of sending it to the landfill where it generates methane. That's also a huge factor. There are so many other things I couldn't get to. Marion, you've suggested that we uh, come develop a national food policy agency beyond the USDA and the FDA. But maybe we'll, we can have you back soon, the both of you. Would that be uh, okay? Delighted. We would love to have you back to take a lot of listener calls the next time. Yeah, that'd be fun. But meanwhile, the book that we've been discussing is Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. It's published by the University of California Press. And my great thanks to Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman for being such great guests on our show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview. And a big thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And uh, we're on pretty much all the places you get a podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And if you want to reach me directly, my email address here is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. You might want to comment on a show or just to say hello. I'm happy to hear from you. Before I sign off today, a, uh, I'd like to take just one last moment to ask you for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this unique community radio station alive. We don't take money. We don't run ads. The uh, people talked about my previous station. They ran ads, even though they're public radio. We do not run ads. We rely totally on our listeners. And as I mentioned earlier, if you become a BAI buddy today by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large of 10, 15, 20, whatever amount of money you can do, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book that we have been discussing. Let's ask Marion what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition, and health by my guests, Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman. It's our way of saying thank you for your generosity, but please make sure to make that contribution in the name of London Low Pit at Large. And from all of us at WBAI, thank you very much. We're off on Monday, but we hope you can join us again on Tuesday when one of our favorite regular contributors to the show, Bob Henley, will be here. Have a great weekend.